This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. All right, welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio. Glad to have you with us here for another episode. Today, I'm going to be talking with Jack Muir from Verified Long Range. So we're going to talk most predominantly today about shooting technique. So we're going to talk about prone position shooting. We're going to talk about bench shooting. We're going to talk about body position when shooting. We're going to talk about trigger technique. We're going to talk about the top two or three things that people do wrong with shooting technique. Again, we're going to talk about trigger technique to affect accuracy. And we're going to give you tips and tricks of what you can pretty much do immediately to take your shooting to a whole new level. We're also going to talk about gun fit and stock selection for better results downrange. So hopefully you guys are going to enjoy this show. Hopefully this is something you're going to be able to learn from. doesn't matter whether you shoot long range. doesn't matter whether you just go out hunting and you shoot at 100 meters. Hopefully there's going to be something in this show uh, that you're going to be able to learn to take your shooting to the next level. Those small things you do on the ground or on the bench are going to be amplified downrange and that's the most important thing. Giving you good usable techniques to get you out in the field to become a better shooter. We're going to keep it simple. We wanted to cater this show for not just uh, new people coming into the sport, but also uh, medium and advanced style shooters as well. Hopefully there's something for everyone to learn on this show. And if you can become a better shooter, inevitably you will get better results, whether that's long range shooting at targets, whether that's hunting, whether that's you know shooting animals or targets at 50 meters. Hopefully this show, you will be able to learn something and change something in your shooting technique going forward. Of course, I want to thank all my people that support me on Patreon. So like I said, I know we're going through difficult times at the moment. So if you can't support me on Patreon, that's fine. Uh, yeah, share the show with your friends, share it on your social media, share it with your family uh, or your shooting friends. I, I really greatly appreciate that. If you can, got a few bucks to throw my way on Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash AHP. I want to thank all. I think I've got close to 50 people now that support me on Patreon. So I want to thank you guys uh, very, very much. And a lot of some of those guys on Patreon, uh, some of my most valued people that I know have been with me for a couple of years uh, since. I first started Patreon. So I want to thank you guys uh, for supporting me and continuing uh, me being able to do this show. And like I say, most shows next year will be coming up uh, to our 10 year mark uh, of AHP and the longest running hunting, shooting and fishing podcast in Australia bar none. So I want to thank you to all the people that uh, support me. Of course, if you want to email me for any reason for straight shooting or just in general, Australian hunting podcast at gmail.com, the website, Australian hunting podcast.com.au. And of course you can find me on Twitter, which I don't really use that much, but I obviously post the show on there at, at twitter.com forward slash AH podcast, of course, on Instagram as well, which I've been really enjoying. Uh, and of course, we have almost 35,000 people on Facebook uh, listening to the show, enjoying the show and contributing to discussion. So if you want to check out the Facebook page, uh, please come and join us for more discussion there as well. And also, of course, if you want to leave us a voicemail, please go to that website, australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Uh, on the right-hand side, you'll say leave voicemail. We love hearing from you. We love playing your uh, audio soundbite during straight shooting 
I'm also considering, and someone uh, I think brought this up just a couple of weeks ago when we do straight shooting, because we've been getting you know an influx of you know emails and voicemails and things like that. I think we should leave the voicemails for straight shooting, but it's a possibility. You know, you guys email me, let me know what you'd like. Uh, a lot of people like when I read out all the comments and discuss it and, and those types of things. So what I'm thinking about doing is possibly maybe starting an extra show. Uh, like the mailbag or something along those lines and basically answering your questions, uh, going through all the questions. Uh, maybe even the voicemails, we'll see how we go. Um, I know you guys like that during straight shooting, but I think uh, during my most recent straight shooting, I think we had about 40 to 45 minutes just answering the emails. And you know we're not getting to a lot of the news stories that we want to talk about. So I think ultimately maybe the mailbag might be a reasonable name for the show. Again, let me know what you guys think. That way I'll be able to answer questions, read out your uh, voicemails and emails, uh, play them on the show, and m maybe make that into a show in itself. So if that's something you'd be interested in, please let me know, because uh, it seems a lot of people like when they write in to hear their emails on the show and hear that discussion. So I think if that's something that you'd be interested in, please email me. I'd love to hear whether you think that'd be a goer, whether that would be interesting, or whether I should just leave it for straight shooting. So uh, anyway, what we're going to do now is we're going to get into my podcast with Jack Muir from Verified Long Range. All right, Jack Muir, welcome to AHP. Thanks for joining me, mate, to, uh, I guess, have a chat about some long range stuff, uh, some shooting techniques. So thanks for joining me and accepting uh, my invitation to come on the show. So thank you. Yeah, no worries, Jace. Um, thanks very much for the thought. I appreciate you getting in touch with myself and, um, yeah, keen to have a bit of a chat. First off, mate, just give us a bit of a, a history about yourself, I guess, age, where you came from, how you got into shooting sports, et cetera. Yeah, no worries, mate. You make me think already. Um, I think I'm about 28, mate. Uh, no, 27. Yeah, there we go. 27, mate. Originally a cattle farmer from Victoria. Um, grew up sort of hunting, all that sort of bits and pieces. Currently living up um, far north Queensland with my wife who's studying vet. Um, and yeah, been managing a gun shop for the last probably six to 12 months. So, Yeah, cool. Did you, uh, how did you get, when you were younger, obviously from Victoria, how did you, were you, were you, were your family into shooting? Was it just because, you know, having a sort of owning a farm or in, just basically involved in those types of activities or? Yes, absolutely, mate. The, um, my, my father sort of introduced my brothers and I sort of into shooting as a sort of a, a necessity in the area. Um, you know, hunting, varmint, anything like that, pest control, mostly bunnies and foxes. That's pretty well all that my father ever hunted. But no, that's, that's how we got into it. He taught us, taught us how to respect the firearms and um, yeah, all of that. I guess when you were growing up, what did you like to, you know, hunt when you were on the farm and stuff? Just, yeah, the bunnies, the foxes, what do you enjoy? I think the, the biggest thing was always the bunnies growing up, one, because, you know, it meant we got to shoot them a few more rounds. The foxes were always a little bit more scarce, um, but certainly growing into it, the foxes became that little bit harder to get, and that was the drive. That's what I used to love hunting, um, especially with Dad, so. What about... Uh, you know, I've, I've <laughs> been in this situation a lot, so I guess I'm not sure if you met your, your wife down there. So when you first met her, you know, what did she say when you said, well, yeah, I like a bit of this uh, shooting business? What did she say? Yeah, no, I was lucky, mate. Um, my wife, Casey, she was uh, her stepfather, Stu's, introduced her to shooting many years ago. They were always, she, she's never been big on the actual hunting, but she was happy to hold the spotlight. So that was always a handy sort of fact in that um but no I've, I've, she's introduced her into a bit of long range shooting and uh, i try not to take her too much mate because she can outshoot me if she tries hard enough <laughs> what about your your family members you said you say you have brothers too are they into any other family members into shooting more as a necessity because i guess you know i've seen your instagram obviously you're like me more into it for the the fun aspect as well but are they any of your family members still into it or enjoy it themselves you know, as much as you or 
Yeah, so my brother Tommy's um he, he's a mad deer hunter whenever he can get out, whenever it's allowed. Um it was both him and him and myself who got into it and, you know, started chasing a bit of the bigger game because dad never had the interest for that. Um out of the three boys, two of us really turned into hunting and um yeah, no, he's still mad keen into it when he can, but um probably mainly myself is trying to shoot every weekend, so yeah, what's your what's your what's your let's let's talk about game first. I mean, growing up older, you said you did you go for deer as well with your brother as well? Yeah, absolutely, mate. So um, it was pretty well every weekend we could. We were heading out, lucky enough in Victoria, having the ability to get in the state forest. We'd go out chasing samba, um, you know, the, the red deer, anything like that. It was um, whatever we could find. We tried to hunt. Uh, it, sort of those first few years, seeing nothing but the rear end of a deer running away, and then being able to gain the technique and be able to actually find the animal from just the start of a track you know it was, it was a massive passion of mine for for many years what about now let's talk about obviously now that you're older you're, you're obviously more experienced i mean let's talk about the hunting first before we get into the other stuff well i guess you know being in what you're in queensland now north queensland so what do you get to do you get to be able to hunt up there or it's more not really more long-range shooting type stuff or what just in general yeah, so predominantly now, mate, I, I just shoot still, not not for the fact that I don't enjoy the hunting, it's just that hunting's actually quite hard to get into up in this area um, because there's we don't have the ability to go into state forests or national parks, it's literally only private property, um, and then of course, you know, the fact of trying to find that property, I've been lucky enough to find a couple of um, hunting areas here, but, you know, only taking a few pigs here or there, I haven't found any deer property, so it is literally not hunting these days because it, it's pretty hard to come by the property to be able to hunt. So what about now, mate, uh, being older? Number one, favourite game to hunt when you get the opportunity? So when I get the opportunity, mate, it'd be torn between, but I'd probably choose red deer. Um, something about hunting in fringe country, being able to sort of study the animal and choose the one that you'd like to harvest. Uh, you know, there's, there's something about that that I've always enjoyed. Uh, main part about just being out there in the middle of nowhere where it's either just my brother and I or a mate and I, um, yeah, that red deer would definitely be it. Uh, if not, an equal second would be chasing foxes down back down Victoria. Yeah, there's nothing like hunting foxes. How do you normally call them in? You whistle, you know, electronic game caller, spotlighting. What's your normally go to there? Yeah, no, I've always been the old fashioned um, button whistle, mate. That's always worked pretty well for myself. Not that I'd take many sort of scalps with it, but uh, it's just walking from hill to hill and seeing where I could find the fox if he was in range or if not getting closer to him. I know I used to have the, the button whistle and I used to sit to myself going, man, I was in like the wind a couple of times and mate gave me this button whistle and I always used to blow on it and go, what the hell's wrong with this thing? There's nothing, you know, it's not very, <laughs> it's not very loud, you know what I mean? And then he goes, yes. oh, try this one. Have you tried this? This is many years ago now. He said, have you tried this Tenerfield whistle? And I said, nah. And he goes, well, I, I can't blow it. Can you try it? And I, was, I remember just putting it in my mouth going, wee, and I started whistling. And he goes, mate, how did you do that? And I said, I don't know. You just told me how to use it. And he goes, well, I don't know how to use it. So, <laughs> and man, we, I think that day actually we caught in like three foxes on one stand. I mean, that was uh, definitely a good day. I think he ended up shooting one and I shot the other one with the uh, two, two, three. But yeah, man, what a, what a fun time to uh, be alive. That's for sure. Let's talk a bit about uh, the long range shooting stuff, but we're going to talk more about technique as well. So how did you get into that? Why was that something that, uh, you know, sparked your interest and, you know, what sort of roughly, you know, it was a couple of years ago you got into it. When did it really start going, oh, I wouldn't mind trying this and seeing how I go? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, I think that's always been that passion, mate. Even shooting your little 22s, you, you get bored of shooting at 20 metres. You want to push it out to 50, 75, 100 metres. 
Um, the main part of how I got into it was I started looking into some competition shooting. So there's a class of shooting called F class, which is basically long range shooting with a 223 or a 308 from 300 to 1,000 meters. That really caught my interest. I literally went over, said g'day to a few of the fellas. Um, I was the youngest person by probably 40 years, but at least I was <laughs> lucky enough to go in there, introduce myself and um, pretty well shut up and just listen to what they had to teach me. And they were all happy to pull me aside and, and introduce me to the art of long range shooting. What do they say? Just a few things from, from that experience. What, you know, what did you think? What was the main couple of things you think you learned from that experience from the older guys that you know, had been doing it for a long time? Yeah, so a, a big factor was all the little bits. So, of course, um, coming from the old fellas, I, I was taught in, you know, imperial sort of yards, um, minute of angle, for example. Um, they really showed me, one, what gear can achieve. You know, I was young, really keen to get in there and just, you know, throw my wallet at them. But basically they said to sort of pull up, um, have a go at a few of our rifles, see if you're going to enjoy the sport. And then if you are, they saw I had potential to be quite a good shooter. So they said, invest in some good gear that will allow you to sort of achieve what you want to do. Um, it definitely was a bit of an eye-opener that I, I didn't exactly learn much in the way of, say, fundamentals of shooting or shooting technique. Uh, of course, there was a little bit in there, but it was more about um, just having a good fun, trying to get those wind calls and, yeah, learning exactly what you need to do to get from you're zero at 100 metres to 300 metres all the way up to 1,000 metres. Um, it was a good way to slowly trickle it in. Uh, probably about six years of competition with those fellas. Um, you, I learned a lot through them. So, An interesting one you brought up there, which I thought was really good, is investing in good gear. Now, I get a lot of people that you know message me. I'm, I'm not a professional at all by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just an average dude that likes to have fun. So you try and buy the best things you can, but what if people can't afford that? What do you think people should do if they want to get into, it doesn't matter what type of shooting is, could be long range, but they want to become better. Do they need to buy the best gear possible? Should they wait that extra bit of time, that couple of months to buy that extra better scope or that better rifle or maybe that piece of reloading gear? What do you think about that when people say, you know, we'll save to buy better stuff? What do you think? It's a good one, and especially working in the firearm industry, um, managing the gun shop, it, it's one I get every day. Um, the easiest thing to say is, yes, buy the, the best gear that you can, but not necessarily what you can, buy the best gear you can afford and justify. Um, my biggest thing is the scope, as you'll find with a lot of long-range shooters. Even if I'm using a hunting rifle, I will invest into that optic. Um, and even if it's just going to the range and plinking cans, that optic is what's going to make you enjoy it. Um, if you can't see the target clearly, you know, you're not going to push your boundaries. Um, that's really where it comes down to it is, you know, the optic is a big part, but that being said, there's many, many different types of optics out there. If you want to limit yourself to, say, you know, 500 metres, you can achieve a lot with a $500 scope. Um, if you want to shoot a hole-in-hole precision out to 500, 1,000 metres, then, yes, that optic's going to um, obviously be that limiting factor that will make you enjoy every second of it. So, What about scope, you know, expenditure and stuff like that? I mean, what are people realistically need to be in the ballpark figure to – you know, try and get the best results they can out of not only the scope but also the rifle and themselves in making sure they can see what they're looking at, you know, downrange. Yes, I think a lot of it comes down to expectations. I mean, people think if they put $1,000 into an optic, they should be able to see a little hole in paper at 1,000 metres, which um, plain and truly just doesn't happen. Uh, the, the first thing talking about optics that I'll always bring up is is what do you want to achieve with it? Um, is it a hunting scope that we're going to shoot one, 200 metres or is it a scope that we're going to shoot out to 1,000 metres? And then the next point will be sort of what is your budget? 
And when it comes into it, you know, if you've got a thousand dollars to spend, you'll find a really nice long range scope. Um, when you start looking into say that fifteen hundred dollar, at least in my opinion, that's when you'll start to see that the the turrets will track if you want to use dial-in. But if for some reason, you know, you you have to spend your money elsewhere um, and you can only afford that five six hundred dollar scope. You can actually use that reticle, um, whereas the reticle should generally be correct with any good manufactured scope. If you're to hold off with your reticle as opposed to dial-in, that's where it would come down to. If I couldn't spend the money in a scope that I know is going to dial and track as well as I want it to, I would invest into an optic with a good reticle that I can learn and um, push my boundaries with that. All right, guys, quick break and we'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability, and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. All right, I'm going to throw a good one at you just because we are talking about scopes just before the break. Now, turrets versus glass. Sometimes people want to go the glass factor, but I guess people that are more into long range such as yourself tend to – I guess tracking is probably more important than glass. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, especially coming from um, the F-Class competition side when, you know, instead of running your quarter-minute MOA clicks, you're running one-eighth clicks. So you're trying to split hairs, you know, all the way out to a 1,000 metres, basically. The turrets are my most important thing. If, if the scope doesn't track, I'm, I'm not interested. Um, glass is a big thing, though. I've never really found too many scopes that I go, righto, um, I can't see through that. I couldn't use that. A big factor is, of course, low light, um, dust, dawn, you know, something like that nice bit of glass with a big objective, 50, 56 mil, that's what I'd be after. But, yeah, Desson's definitely turrets tracking. If they don't track, then I'm not interested in the optics. So. What, what are you normally seeing at the shop? What are people normally buying when they come in? Obviously, they're coming in for expertise and you say, well, they've got this much money to spend. Do you ask about budget? What's normally selling off the shelves, et cetera? Yeah, no, absolutely, mate. So the biggest thing, uh, the, the first question is budget and what you want to do with it, really. Um, if you have a look at budget and say someone comes in, they want to spend around that $500 mark, you can find some beautiful sort of bushnels, anything in there. Uh, there's the new line of Zerotex have been very popular because they have that um, the ability of that dial-in plus some good reticles. Um, I've also had quite a lot of, you know, you start to head into that that Leopold mark for a standard hunting scope. If someone comes in and they want to start talking about um, that 1,000 to 1,500, yet again, it, it's similar brands. You've got your Bushnell, Leopolds. Um, we start heading into sort of that Night Force market, which I'm, I'm a very big fan of them, mainly for the fact that they track. I've competed with Night Force for, um, you know, six, seven years, and I, I trust their scopes. Then um, I also have been running one of the Steiner T5Xs. So um, you start heading towards that 1,500, 2,000 to, you know, 3,000. Um, they're all there. You've got your Steiners, Leopolds. At the end of the day, my opinion is when you hit that sort of that $1,500 mark and up, you're going to get a good scope. The biggest thing is that if I'm sitting here telling you it's the best scope in the world, but you pick it up and you don't like it, you don't like it. Um, they're all going to be a decent optic at that price point. It comes down to what do you like and um, asking questions. And even if I tell you something behind the counter, I want you to go ahead and sort of verify that yourself so that you're not just taking someone's word for it. What about 1500 plus when you get into, you know, obviously the night forces, those types of things, you've got some Swarovskis depending on what you want to do with it and stuff like that. 
when you step up from 1500 to that real expensive stuff, which a lot of people that I know, I mean, even 1500 plus, I don't have many friends that would spend that on a scope. And I used to be of that, uh, I guess, consideration as well. So when you go above that 1500 to the two grand, to the two and a half, to three, to the four, are we really seeing that much of a difference? I mean, if tracking is good on that, say, 1500 to two grand scope, is the glass that much better? You do see it in the glass. Um, you, you can see it, but though, you know, if you're looking into a gun shop, honestly, you won't really see the difference. It's not until you take it out field, you push it out to that thousand metre mark. Um, for example, the the Stoner I run is probably some of the nicest glass I've ever run. That's a 3000 sort of dollar optic. Um, absolutely beautiful. On low light and dusk, it holds up its own, though I've still got that night force in there with the 50 mil, which is my 4x14, the same scope you're running at the moment. Um Clarity-wise, I can't see a massive difference. Um, when it comes down to the price point, a lot of it you get in is, say, the adjustability in the turret. So if you head to that 34 mil, you're going to have more elevation. Um, also, we're looking at first, second focal plane. And then a large part, of course, is where that scope is manufactured after that point. So when you start looking at a, a $2,000 night force, they're still going to be, say, Japan. If you start looking into that three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 night force, then they'll be made in, say, America um, and so forth with your vortexes, anything like that. They go from Philippines to being made in America at a certain price point. So I think a lot of it comes down to um, where it's manufactured and probably not necessarily the longevity of that optic, but just knowing a little bit more about its background. When I spoke to the Rick Cristiani from Leica probably a couple of months ago, I think it was probably before Christmas now, this year's gone so quick. Uh, you know, he said a lot of these Chinese manufacturers, especially are really starting to become very good in glass grinding and stuff like that. So they might get their glass from Europe. They learn to grind it. There's not many grinders, as far as you probably know, uh, around the world. And uh, they're coming a long way. So yeah, a lot of people used to turn their nose up at, you know, Chinese, you know, optics, where it's, whether it's zero tech, whether, but I mean, look what's happened with Athlon for an example. I mean, Athlon, got a pretty good name for itself uh, especially over the years in the market being i think from what i understand chinese glass as well yeah no, absolutely mate and, and that sort of comes from that standpoint you know i was probably a little bit spoiled in the fact that like the first long range scope i ever used was a leopold mark V, I i believe and then um coming through with the night forces I, I honestly never thought i'd probably own a chinese scope but now running sort of one of those zero techs um made in china but apart from that everything else is is on par um for the price point and the availability of it i've just been thoroughly impressed so even though i, I probably would have been one of those who turned my nose up at that sort of um coming from you know anything you know made in china um the fact that a lot of their scopes even your vortex is in philippine they come with an unlimited lifetime warranty how do you argue with it um at the end of the day if, even if it does break i'm still going to be looked after in the future um and from what i've seen very very few of them ever come back how are you finding the uh tracking on that is it something that's uh, been an issue for you at all or no i know some people i think I had one guy that had an issue but all in all i've heard pretty pretty good things about them so yeah, no, I, um, before I even owned one, I took one from behind the counter and gave it a bit of a tracking test. Um, it probably has on average around, I think the Stein has got about 230 clicks. I think the ZeroTech got about 200. Out of those 200 clicks, it may have missed one or two, um, honestly, whereas some of the night forces, they have about a 0.1% of um, tracking error. I haven't completed that with the percentage, but the ZeroTech is, is certainly for the price point, not far away at all from any of those night forces and Steiners. I think the, the biggest question is longevity you know will that still track the same in 10 years time whereas i'm certain that the night force will yeah that's an interesting question i mean that's an interesting question i don't think i've ever brought that up on the show i mean is there a 
is there a, a, a lifespan on a scope, do you think? Is there a lifespan on tracking and continually, you know, pressing up against those turrets on a regular basis? Do you think there's a limit to, you know, could I have that scope in 30 years and it will still track as good today as it, it will then? I, I believe there definitely is. Um, I, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't know the whole facts and everything about it. But, for example, you have a look at some of the night forces. They're very well renowned because they use a titanium spring as opposed to a stainless steel. Um, whereas, of course, that's going to, in theory, hold up a lot better and longevity over the time. Um, a lot of our sort of cheaper scopes, you know, some of the introductory vortexes and or some of these Zerotex, that's my question. You know, I'm thoroughly impressed with this optic. I'd happily buy another one. Um, but, yeah, I'm keen to sort of ask myself that same question in 10 years time after i've been running it pretty hard um as of yet but then i guess that's the benefit to a lot of the optics coming out these days with that unlimited lifetime warranty if i do come out in say five years time and it's not quite where it is then in theory they should help us out it's interesting isn't it I always laugh to myself and i think sometimes imagine that yeah 30 years goes by you know you rock up with your whatever scope it is, doesn't matter which brand you've got, you've got a lifetime warranty and you're like, hey, man, it's <laughs> you know, it's not working now. And they're like, what, the, what model is that? Oh, that's like a model from 30 years ago. <laughs> and then having to pay the extra for it, I reckon that's just uh, – I mean, if it lasts for 30 years, I guess we can't really complain, can we? No, that's exactly right, mate. But no, I've, I've been thoroughly impressed. It's something that I hadn't really thought of um, before I worked in the firearms industry, but I've had scopes come back from some of the major manufacturers that – 40, 50 years old, they no longer make anymore. Um, and quite simply, the company just gave them the brand new equivalent of that optic. Um, you know, you can't argue with that for service. Absolutely. Let's talk about what, I guess, some of the stuff that you own, man, why you own it before we get into some shooting techniques. Yeah, absolutely, mate. So um, basically, I, I try to limit myself to how many firearms I own um, because I do spend quite a bit of money in my optics and rifles. I'd rather have, say, I think I've got about five rifles that i want to take out every weekend that i go i've got three main long guns that are my sort of you know they're, they're the things that i want to shoot every weekend um as opposed to owning say 10 or 12 of guns that i use you know once twice two times a year what i run currently my first ever centerfire rifle with it was a weatherby vanguard 223 um that was my fox in rue rifle for many years that suited me really well um i've recently rebarreled that to a bagara barrel um and yeah, that's just now become my two to three training rifle. Um, on top of that, I've got a Night Force 4x14x50 in the SHV first focal plane. Um, I've always had the Night Force. I believe I always will have at least one of them just for the fact that they've, they've never let me down in that aspect. Um, my other gun at the moment is the Defiance 308, uh, which is in an Oryx chassis with a Bartland barrel. Um, on top of that is I'm running the Zerotech Trace Advanced 4.5x27x50 in the first focal plane mills. Um, and then also I've got the Bagara 300 Win Mag that we've had a few conversations about, um, which currently has my Steiner 5x25x56 um, on top of that. Yeah, nice. I think I saw a couple of people with the – Bagara B14 HMR, and I've never sort of, a lot of people know, I've, I've mainly bought ticker rifles in the past, so it's sort of my first time, except in 22, obviously, and shotguns, stepping away from the brand, which I think is good, trying something new, and uh, obviously, with this COVID shit that's going on, I haven't really had a chance to even get out and shoot it just yet, but I hope to in the next couple of weeks or so, getting out and uh, doing some test loads on it with the 208 grain, and I took some advice from you, to, uh, one of the uh, I guess cheaper breaks. I used to buy the what was it, APA, uh, the little bastards, 
So I'm trying something new as well. But yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm what do you like about the Bagara? What sort of tossed you up when you were you know, looking at buying a 300 Win Mag if you even were at the time? What interested you about the uh, Bagara B14 HMR? Yeah, mate. So, so basically, um, whenever it comes to myself purchasing a firearm, with the exception of say one or two, like as you say, the 22, where I've got a lever action. Um, Basically, every rifle I own or build is is designed for long range. Um, I was having a look at a couple of the Remington 700s. As we know, they've been around forever. I then came across the Bagaras, which is based on the Rem 700 platform. Um, They've been making barrels for a very long time, which I wasn't familiar with. But when I looked into it, I could see that it had been around a long time. The biggest thing that sold me was that it came fully set up. Um, I had the internal alloy bedding in there, um, the integrated chassis. I've got the adjustable cheek piece, the adjustable length of pull. That's really what sold me. Um, I then managed to get one in my hands and I struggled to see anything wrong with it. You know, so the bolt throw was nice and smooth, as in my opinion, as smooth as a lot of the Tikas I felt. Um, definitely as smooth as the Rem 700s I felt. So I thought, why not? Um, I was after that bigger caliber just so I could push it out that little bit further. Um, in theory, it was a hunting rifle, even though I've, I've never really had a chance to get it out hunting with the current situation. Um, it, it's really impressed me. And, and so far, so forth, I've been so impressed that I'm now using the Bagara barrels in a few of my other rifles. So if you want to go out hunting, <laughs> what do you generally use? Have you got a light variant rifle that you normally get out hunting with or you just take the big heavy bangers out and off we go? Yeah, pretty well, mate. As I say, everything's designed for that bit of distance. Um, you know, though we do take that occasional offhand shot when we do get out, generally I'm a bit of a sort of just picky picky bugger. I'd rather sit there and, and wait for that opportunity. Um, I'd, I'd happily let an animal pass in so that I can see him again, even if it's at two, 300 metres away where I know um, that is my comfortable zone. If it's two, 300 metres, I'd be more comfortable doing that than an offhand shot at 100 metres. Yeah, totally agree. What, what are you running out of the Bagara again? I can't remember. Are you running 212, 200 grain? I can't remember. Yeah, so the 212 ELDX is what was what I um what's what I've settled on and found a beautiful load for. Um, I originally started running any of the 308s I had handy. Um, I was running some 168 ELDMs, uh, but no, that 212 has been my most accurate um, and in theory most um, devastating round. So, were you planning on hunting with that? Because I'm going to try the. I think you already spoke about it anyway. But the uh, 208 grain. What any reasons settling on the you know ELDX more for hunting? What the opportunity that if hunting comes around, you might use it there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the rifle was in theory built as a uh, hunting rifle. If I do find that deer property where I'd um, definitely be keen, um, I ended up, it was literally going to be a hunting rifle. Um, I was so impressed with its ability out to that seven, 800 meter mark that I've just kept pushing it and pushing it. It's it's now in theory turned into my um, extreme long range rifle as anything past that thousand meter mark, this rifle certainly holding up to its own. Uh, that's the theory of it though, but no, um, yeah, no, I've been that impressed with it that it's sort of turned itself from that hunting gun to an occasional thin to it, it comes to the range most most trips with me. All right. I've got a bone to pick with you. This is funny, right? So yes. I had an SHV. I've got Night Force. Now, it's, <laughs> I was going to put it on my – I had a, a CTR in 260. So over you know Christmas, I tend to do very stupid things, which some people may not consider stupid, but I start buying stuff and then I'm probably not going to use it. Um, anyway, so I, I had the Night Force SHV on the, the CTR. I then sold that because I think I don't really use this. I don't know why I bought it. Anyway, I got my money back for it. So then I put the – night force on the bagara which i know you had it on yours as well i'm thinking if i am going to shoot at long range maybe i might put the delta striker on it then i saw a photo sir 
that you took it off and now you're running something else on there, you naughty boy. So tell me about that. I mean, I'm sitting there with the night force going, well, if it's good enough for Jack, it's good enough for me. Then the next photo, you bastard, you've got, uh, I think you might have the Steiner on it. I can't remember something on those lines. Yeah, so basically, mate, um, I set it up, as I say, as that hunt rifle. So 4x14 was more than sufficient. Um, and honestly, to this day, mate, that scope holds my longest shot. Um, you know, with that Bagara setup, I've managed to get um, – there was a bit of luck in between it, but a first-round impact, uh, impact at one point uh, – what was it? Uh, 1.3 Ks. Um, so that was with a 4x14 power scope on a man-sized silhouette. So I was pretty impressed with that and the optic. The only reason that I swapped it out was because I've decided, you know, this rifle's capable past that 1,000-metre mark. So, hey, let's throw the Steiner on there, which is designed to be run on a 338 Lapua. Um, it gives me that little bit extra elevation. So, in theory, uh, if I can find the opportunity to get the shot, I can dial all the way out to um, a mile. Um, and that's my ambition is to be able to hit a target at a mile. All right. Excellent, man. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories, and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au Quality gear at affordable prices. Mate, I want to talk about something very important that you just brought up before we went to the ad break about magnification. Now, I've always said this. I sometimes a lot of people tend to, I guess, go really, really, really high magnification, whether they're just even shooting to a hundred meters. I think a lot of us have done that. So, what's the ideal magnification? Do you think? I mean, not only for let's say for some short range hunting to mid range hunting or long range shooting uh, to long range hunting and long range target shooting. Yeah, mate. So one of the first questions, yet again, I, I ask is, you know, are we intended to hunt with this optic? Um, and generally, the, the biggest reason why I ask that is because if there's going to be the opportunity for an offhand shot, I want, you know, around that three, four, five minimum magnification. Um, as you can imagine, as you look through that optic, if you're on, if you've got a minimum magnification of about eight power, you're seeing eight times your movement. Um, even though the rifles in theory move in the same, it makes us think, wow, you know, we're moving quite a lot. Um, I, ha- I, I start to stress, you start to worry about it. Whereas if you take that magnification and wind it right back to three power, you'd be amazed at how much more accurate you will be, not necessarily because you're holding the firearm steadier, but because you believe you are. Um, then when it comes down to it, you know, I used to compete with the Night Force, which was a bench rest 8 by 32 On an odd occasion, I would use that 32 power. In Victoria, shooting a 1,000 metres, I would. Um, the main part as to... I'd normally be around that 22 power was because of Mirage, um, especially living in, you know, tropical North Queensland, you get high humidity, high temperature. Even though I run a couple of um, 5 by 25s or the 4.5 by 27, I very rarely would go anywhere past 20 power because um, yet again, as the, the more you zoom in, the worse that Mirage comes. So if you wind that scope back, you can actually learn a lot. Um, I had an interesting one today, a customer come in and he's picked up the scope and he's around the power straight to 12 power. And I'm sort of sitting to myself, you know, how did this go? And he goes, oh, I'm as blind as a bat. I need all the magnification I can get. Um, whereas I think a large part of it is, you know, you look at what people have been doing for many years with 10 power scopes. Anything over that is a bonus, though I think sometimes it can be a hindrance if we zoom that magnification all the way in. 
What do you think, before we get onto shooting technique, just one last question, more so surrounding scope, second focal plane versus first focal plane. I noticed on the on the SHV, the, the night force, I mean, pretty much anything below uh, maybe 8, 10 power, you know, they're pretty much the reticles, like, you know, almost non-existent. I'd probably have to look for it if I was hunting, you know, something at close range. So where do people need, say, the first focal plane versus the second focal plane? I know on the, I've got a Citron S3, um, same thing, pretty much anything under about 10 power, 10 to 10, 10 to 12 power, you know, it's pretty useless to be honest. So what do people need and what should they buy and what should it depend on what type of, I guess, what, what they're shooting and whether it's hunting or long-range shooting? Yeah, absolutely, mate. So yet again, it's another discussion that you could sit here and talk all day. Um, and no matter what you and I discuss yourselves, um, there'll be another 50 people out there with their own opinions. Uh, really, with the first and second poke focal plane, it comes down to a course of, of what is the difference between them. Um, and to simplify it, of course, second focal planes where the reticle is always the same sort of picture, the same view. First focal plane is when it grows and shrinks with your magnification, which means that no matter what magnification you are, the measurements in that reticle are always correct and they always translate to the turret. Um, if I was to head back to, say, F-class shooting, I have this conversation quite a lot with competitive shooters, I would still run a second focal plane scope. The reason being for that is because I'm going to use that 8 to 32 power. I'd pretty well end up straight back with that um, bench rest scope again. And at 32 power in a first focal plane, that reticle would appear to be massive and almost cover some of those aiming points. Uh, when it comes to second focal plane, it is the same picture if I'm on 8 or 32, so I can be familiar with that picture. The reason why the last three scopes I've purchased have been first focal plane is because a lot of my shooting these days is more on the white line of, say, tactical steel shooting, you know, aiming towards that sort of PRS style of shooting where you could be shooting a target at 300, 500, 600 metres. The only downside to that second focal plane is, okay, let's say I've measured in my reticle that I've missed that target off the left edge by, say, three minutes of angle. Now, all of a sudden, I have to make sure what magnification I'm on, if I'm on the correct true magnification to measure with that reticle and then adjust. And or if I miss off the left edge, say, three minutes of angle with my first focal plane, I can dial or hold three minutes of angle and squeeze the trigger. It's as simple as that. So it depends. If, if I'm shooting tiny little holes in paper, I would still be that second focal plane. Even hunting scenario with a standard duplex reticle, I would be a second focal plane because we're not worried about measuring with that reticle. Um, but, yeah, as a standard, the majority of my scopes now are first focal plane. Sweet, man. Let's get into the shooting technique stuff. What are your top uh, two or three things people do wrong, which is probably everything that I do wrong, shoot uh, <laughs> for shooting technique? What are the, say, the two, three things that you think they do wrong pretty much before they even start or when they get on the ground or on the bench? Yeah, mate. So basically, um, when I start shooting, uh, talking shooting technique, I'll generally turn it into the fundamentals of marksmanship um, as a basic principle. You know, you've got, say, the, the five basic months of, uh, you know, fundamentals of marksmanship. You've got your sight picture, natural point of aim, breathing, trigger control, and follow through. The three things that shooters quite often do wrong, um, my number one on my list would be breathing. Um, it's the common misconception that you want to either hold your breath or, you know, let half your breath out and then hold it there. Um, being human beings, we're naturally uh, inconsistent uh, sort of, you know, creatures. So if you tell me to, at the moment, hold my breath, I can do that, though the first thing that will go there is, say, my eyes. Um, 
we don't realise it, but as soon as our brain starts to get deprived of oxygen, we start to see little floaters in our eyes and we start to shake and all these little things. The pictures we're seeing isn't exactly what we want to be looking at. Um, it, it's one of the worst things you can do in shooting, in, in sort of my opinion. The other part of sort of, you know, letting half your breath out and holding it there, if I'm to do that now, is that the same amount of half my breath as it is if I do it two hours later, if it's all consistent? And when it comes down to it, marksmanship is consistency. So the theory of holding your sort of breathing technique, um, my opinion would be to release all the oxygen in your lungs um, at that natural respiratory pause. That is when you want to break that trigger. Absolutely. Good stuff. Any other tips or things that people do wrong, you know, when they're obviously starting out and shooting? I mean, you know, like leg placement, what are you just generally seeing? Yeah, so I think um, a big one would be trigger control. Um, Definitely something that we can talk into a little bit more as well. But the the main thing that we do, it it doesn't matter if we do everything correct in the process of about to send that round down range. If we yank that trigger um, straight away, that's going to throw an effect. You're going to be off target. Um, That's a big one that a lot of us do. And that's one that we sort of all keep coming back to our head that, you know, I want that lighter trigger, um, whereas it may come down to, you know, with proper trigger control, you could sort of bypass that. Um, as another one I do see, which is not necessarily technique, but something that I see shooters sort of struggling with in the future is trying to buy results. Um, you know, if, if we've got an endless checkbook, then yes, you can buy a firearm that will not in theory make you a better shooter but it will hide a few of your, say, um, fundamental flaws with that lighter trigger or that heavier rifle. Uh, whereas I believe, you know, if you were to sort of either shoot what you have as a beginning, you, you should be able to shoot to the best of your ability with what you have before you progress in the perfect world. Interesting something you just brought up there, like trigger technique. And I guess it depends on what sort of rifle you do buy to how good the trigger actually is, what you can lower it down to. So how much of a difference, say, to shooting technique does either you know the factory trigger being maybe okay to getting something like a a, an aftermarket trigger or or a two-stage trigger a hair trigger whatever you'd like to call them is there a big difference in that do you think you think it's like worthwhile do you shoot factory triggers or is it worthwhile upgrading to that next level yeah, so it's a good question and one that you um, I, I come across often. Um, if you would ask me what poundage all of my triggers were on, I'd have absolutely no idea. Basically, I, I've generally shot a factory trigger. The, the Weatherby, I've never adjusted. Um, the Bagara, I backed off just that little bit to sort of play around with it, and the Defiance is as factory sort of come. Now, the Defiance is, a, a, what I'm running on there, is a trigger tech. It's a very high-end trigger, um, and I've never felt the need to sort of move with it. Where I quite often see people want to adjust that trigger or need to make it lighter, um, a lot of roost shooters who are moving about, you know, heart pounding up and down, they want to break that clean shot without having to worry about it. I can understand the use of a, a trigger as long as it's in a safe sort of um, scenario. But my sort of rule of thumb is you should be able to use whatever system that you've been handed. Um, the perfect marksmanship, it doesn't matter if it's got a factory trigger or a brand new two-ounce trigger, you should be able to shoot that rifle in the same way. Um, it just comes down to how you approach that trigger and how you manipulate that trigger, whether you have that time to sort of let in that wall and or whether you, you rush that shot. Um, so I think the trigger can make a big part, though I believe most shooters should be able to achieve what they want with the current trigger they have perfect mate quick break we're right back the national shooting council is taking legal actions against the governments of three states that closed their gun shops down during the coronavirus pandemic because what they did was an attack on every shooter and the right to go shooting 
The NSC is also leading the fight to stop the reclassification of firearms and is preparing important voting advice for every shooter in every state, territory and federal election coming up. That's why the NSC is the leading political organisation for shooters in Australia. So support us work by becoming a member today at nationalshooting.org.au. Mate, want to talk about your, say, top two or three tips to become a better shooter? Yeah, mate. Um, I mean, the list is endless. Um, at the end of the day, the, the first one's an old simple one that no one wants to hear, but it's practice. Um, it's not necessarily just practice in general, but it's perfect practice. Um, there's lots of things. There's no point going out there and, you know, say dry firing, for example, and just getting as many trigger presses as possible so that you can say, oh, I've dry fired for the last hour. It's about instead of doing that nice rush technique, you know, doing it all correctly. So, Everyone will have their own version of correct technique or sort of situation, but at the end of the day, um, practice is a massive one that will really help that shooter. Um, trying to build up a repetition of what you're doing. Um, it's a simple thing as when it comes to, say, if someone says, right, I, I don't have time to dial to that target. If there's a deer there, I'm just going to you know, hold over its head and squeeze the trigger. With correct practice and repetition, you should be able to do that um, almost as easily as doing that, and you're going to give it a much better chance of getting a clean ethical kill. Another, probably number two of something that will really help you become a better shooter is big target. You know, when it comes to long range, if you start off trying to hit a one MOA target, so 10 inches at 1,000 metres, you're going to miss and you're going to set yourself up for failure. Um, the biggest thing is a sheet of saw, say, core fluting you can get um, anywhere if I set that target up at 500 metres and I have no idea of what I'm doing, I need to hold up, dial, hit, try and hit that target. At least if I can catch my round on a target at 500 metres, I have a starting point. Okay, I need to come up. Okay, I need to come down. Wow, the wind really moved me to left or right. Being able to find that bullet as opposed to just a splash in the dirt um, can really build confidence and help you in the right direction. Basically, um, the, the third thing that I'd say is to help you become a better shooter would be to ask questions. Um, and especially it doesn't matter if it's coming from myself or someone behind the counter at the shop. If I tell you that's the best thing in the world, do a little bit of research yourself and verify it for yourself. Because um, at the end of the day, there's some people out there just trying to sort of sell items. Um, whereas, you know, like, at least I can speak for myself, passionate about what I'm doing. I'm trying to set you up with something that you will love and enjoy so people tend to you know do things and i guess we've all done it and we don't really know not so what we're doing but we don't write it down can you talk about is it worthwhile for people to you know not have a diary so to speak but write down so they can go back and look at notes and those types of things and say well this is what happened because sometimes i've done things and i thought well what happened there and it wasn't until later on that it sort of clicked in my mind about what actually happened there. And you know, if I probably had written it down or thought about it at the time, it might have made a big difference when I was probably actually shooting on the day that I was actually shooting. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And that's something you'll see, especially um, with a lot of the videos I sort of do with shooting, is I've generally got a notebook next to me. Um, they sort of, you can call it your, your data book or your dope book, anything like that, especially with long range shooting. But whenever I introduce someone to long range, I've got a few mates who all want to come out and have a crack at hitting that thousand meter target, I'll tell them to bring their pen and paper. Um, and a lot of them don't realize that it's all, you know, fun and games from the start. I, I'd rather teach you a little bit and, and make you learn, okay. If I've hit a 500-meter target, I can write down that data. So that pen and paper is a massive thing. Um, it can be as simple as, okay, I was leaning against the ute, I used the rear bag or I didn't use a rear bag and I was more stable. 
the sort of things that you're doing in time, you've got a little bit of adrenaline running or you're just enjoying what you're doing and you forget about it all. It comes back to a week later, okay, I'm going to try it again or what did I do? Um, so writing it down is definitely a, a big thing that um, can really improve shooting as well. Mate, number one tip, say, that someone could do to, you know, basically improve or instantly improve by just changing one thing instantly to get some, to get some better results uh, short term and just medium term. Yeah, so um, without saying, you know, so that, that one thing straight away, I'd say is, is to learn the fundamentals of marksmanship. Um, if I had to pick one that would be that number one thing to learn, it would be natural point of aim. Um, definitely when it comes to offhand shooting, but when you come down to the prone shooting, you don't realize how important it is to have those reticles naturally pointed to the target um, is going to make a massive difference as opposed to we don't realize that we're all muscling. It's really come into game now that I'm doing a little bit of off-ground shooting, positional shooting, that natural point of aim is really key. Um, it's a good practice point of if you are, say you've got that target at 300 metres and you're trying to stand up or lean and you want to hit that target and you're throwing bullets everywhere, uh, a big thing that I'd be a fan of would be to take the bullets out of the firearm and dry fire that firearm. Um, basically, if you can't hold the reticle still on target when you're dry firing, you're just going to waste ammunition if you use it when you're live firing. Yeah, very, very good one you just brought up there. I really want to talk about that. And I guess uh, my next question was, is it better to shoot prone, lying down or bench? But there's a lot of people that listen to the show too that obviously just either mainly hunt or that's what they generally do. So is it what's the best way? Obviously, practice is probably one of them, you know, to, to become a better shooter in that area. I know you shoot off like blocks and barricades. I mean, what's the, because there's obviously a multitude of situations, whether you're um, shooting, you know, PRS shooting, whether you're long range shooting at targets, someone's out there hunting and they're walking around and they see a deer at, you know, 100, 150 meters. Obviously, sometimes it could be difficult to get on the ground to shoot prone to have to do that. You might have to lean up against a tree. It all depends on where you're shooting. So, we talk a bit about that positional shooting and obviously how to get better at, at doing that on a consistent basis, whether you're hitting targets or you're hunting as well. Yeah, mate, and, and that can be a massive eye-opener. Um, in theory, the lowest possible position to the situation that you're in is generally going to be your most stable position. Um, when it comes to prone or any shooting, in theory, it says that the lower you are to the ground, the more surface contact you have to the ground you are going to be more stable, though we don't want to be sitting there as low as possible. So I've got my bipod unextended. I'm uncomfortable and I'm sitting there going, geez, when am I going to get out of this shooting position? That's the worst thing about that saying as low as possible. You want to be as low as possible for the situation. So if I can get myself up so that even though I'm lying down prone, I'm on my elbows, um, I've got my neck up extended nice and easily so I'm not pulling any muscles or tweaking it, that's when you're really not going to enjoy your time. Um, a big factor that I found with, say, any of these shootings, I would, 100%, if I can get a nice clean prone shot with a rear bag underneath the firearm, that is where I'm comfortable and that's where I'll get all my accuracy. If I have to shoot off a bench one, if I'm at the range or um, I'm leaning off the back of the ute, that's all I've got, then it's a case of gaining that contact area, surface area to be as stable as possible. A big eye-opener was something as simple as um, some shooting sticks. You know, any of our hunters who have been out there and you're out in that field, even if the grass is, you know, a two foot high, one foot high, you've got a bit of scrub, prone's not an option. Um, that's where, okay, if I'm sitting there and I've got time and opportunity, an animal comes out, one, I'm going to look for support. Um, so whether that's standing next to a tree, 
Two, if I can get any lower, I'm going to look for kneeling support. So if there's a branch at that height, I'm going to kneel, get myself lower to the ground as possible and shoot as long as I can still see that animal. Um, and then three, something as simple as something bringing in either a tripod or to not that extent, um, some shooting sticks, which are quite easy to make and take yourself. That can give me that seated position where I'm closer to the ground as possible and I'm more likely to get a clean ethical kill. Um, something where I'm standing offhand, although a lot of us will make that shot, I believe for my own ability, I'm a lot more likely to miss a rushed offhand shot than um, if I just you know, get something stable to lean against. It will, it will increase my percentage a chance very high. Yeah, very good one. I want to talk about that one too, about head placement and I guess how good stocks contribute to to better shooting results. I've noticed when I've got a hunting rifle and you don't, you really start to appreciate a good length of pull. Uh, you really start to appreciate a good uh, cheek riser and some, you know, a good palm swirl that's comfortable. So when you sort of had that, sometimes it's very hard. I just bought another hunting rifle probably you know, four or five weeks ago. And, you know, once you've had those, I guess, attributes on a stock, it's very hard to go back, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, mate. And um, the, the biggest eye-opening moment in rifle setup that I had um, in the F-Class competitions, I had one year there where I placed extremely well. Um, you know, my high point of my F-Class career was uh, coming third place out of Victoria in the Champions of Champions. And that was beautiful. The rifle was singing, the reload was perfect, everything was working exactly how I wanted to do. Um, and then the following year, I shot horribly. Um, maybe not the year, but at least the first six months of that year. I couldn't figure out why, you know, my groups, I had a string of elevation, I had this, I had uh, left and right, all sorts. Um, and the contributing factor that I've since going back and thinking about it was that was the same time that my cheek piece broke. Um, so I was floating my head, I wasn't comfortable, I wasn't in position. I thought, you know, I'm only squeezing the trigger, it's not going to affect myself that much. Though I would bring basically that poor performance from the fact that I didn't have a comfortable head position. Um, it really came down to opening my eyes that, okay, if I'm doing something for consistency and accuracy, I want to be able to approach that rifle every time and as much as possible be in that same position. It really opens your eyes to how much that can affect you. Yeah, that's excellent. I want to talk about, yeah, I guess part of stock selection there too, but gun fit. Normally, I guess, you know, guns off the shelf, they're generally fairly standard. Sure, they have some extras, you know, length of pull, you know, adjustable cheek piece and something like that. But how much does that gun fit and making sure you're comfortable on the gun affect results downrange, whether it's targets, hunting or whatever? Yeah, mate. So definitely coming back to the fundamentals of marksmanship again. Um, and the basic principle is the reason why we follow the fundamentals is so that we can be as consistent as possible because consistency will equal accuracy um, at a general rule of thumb. Now, when it comes down to that length of pull, um, the most common thing that I'll find someone picks up a rifle, especially when they pick up, say, an Oryx chassis, which is quite a short length of pull, they go, it's too short, I'd need to extend it. Um, the standard length of pull for a majority of firearms is 13 and a half inch of pull. Um, it's based from back in the days, military shooters or sling shooters, where they used to have their uh, left elbow forward of the rifle and they'd have that rifle cocked, the little green army man that you've seen we all grew up playing with. That's where that length of pull is based. Um, with today's modern firearms, one, it was that little bit longer. That was to compensate for the longer shooters as well as the shorter, the taller shooters and the shorter shooters. Uh, where it comes down to it, 13 and a half inch length of pull, which is still the most common length of pull, is too long for majority of shooters. Um, that's where a very big part of if I'm looking for a firearm or I want to set up, say, a younger or a, shoot, a, a shorter shooter, 
is basically the ability to adjust that. So as you know, a lot of the teakers, some of the polystocks in the lithgos, they have the ability to take out at least that you know half inch to an inch length of pull. Um, the theory of that is it all comes down to rifle setup. So if I can get that length of pull to correctly fit my body as well as having that scope aligned, Every time I pick up that rifle, I'm looking through that scope um, with the good cheek piece. It doesn't matter if I'm prone, standing, kneeling, anything like that. As I look through that optic, I get a clear sight picture, which is number one fundamental. Um, I can see edge-to-edge clarity. There's no dark rings. I'm not sitting there searching for the reticle. It's already set up to me. It's The easiest way to talk about a rifle setup is driving your car. Um, basically, we all get into our car. We've got our mirror set up. We've got our seat set up. If I jump into my wife's car and who's quite a bit shorter than me, I'm sitting there, I have to extend the seat, I have to move the mirrors, I have to do all this. I'm not comfortable as soon as I get into it. Um, a lot of us will pick up our rifle and go, okay, I need to be comfortable to this rifle because that's how it's made. Whereas the ability to make that rifle naturally fit you as we do move our seats, mirrors and cars to every single car we get in, that's what really will increase um, consistency behind that rifle. We don't have to work around that rifle. That rifle is already set up for us. Mate, excellent. I was going to go one final break before we finish off and we'll be right back. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Mate, I guess any final advice before finishing off? Anything you'd like to just general chit-chat um, before finishing off the show? Mate, um, I think mainly um, long-range shooting, it's, I always explain it to people as it's a, it's a deep, dark rabbit hole that you'll blow all your money and you'll enjoy absolutely every second of it. Um, <laughs> I've, I've introduced many friends who go to me, yep, and this is the bugger who introduced me to long-range shooting. Um, you know, he said, come out and have a go, and all of a sudden they've built three rifles, three scopes, and even though their bank accounts and some of their wives aren't too big a fan of it, um, they enjoy every second we head to the range, and it's this smile on the faces of all my friends I've introduced who just love every second. It's really – that's what makes it for me. You know, I can go to the range and shoot with my friends. I don't even have to, you know, let a shot off. Um, as long as they're sitting there smacking steel and enjoying themselves, you know, I'm very happy. Um, I think that's a big part is, you know, realising – there's worse hobbies out there to be doing. There's worse ways to be spending your time and money. Um, it just comes down to enjoying it. The biggest thing would be wherever possible, um, get yourselves training. You know, there's plenty of people out there who will introduce you to long range shooting. There's some amazing Australian fellas, even on their Instagram, Facebook pages. If you contact them, they will really be happy to have a chat as I am myself. Um, I think that's a big thing is to ask questions, but not necessarily direct straightforward and say can you help me with this 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 and this feel free to do that but just be willing to look at what they're already you know outlaying to yourself and um just yeah listen to what's being said and then as the biggest thing is to verify it all for yourself i remember talking to my friend just recently and he said man why do you you know do this you know why do you get these guns because he's just obviously a hunter and he goes just throwing money down range left right and center you could spend it on so much more and i thought you yeah, bastard yeah why do you got to tell me that for you know yeah and we're just throwing money down range but hey it's fun why not i guess better than smoking or doing drugs i guess 
Yeah, no, absolutely, mate. And uh, that's something that comes up quite easily. You know, introduce your kids into long-range shooting or shooting in general and they won't have any money for drugs. So you're all sorted, mate. <laughs> Curveball question. Say someone had, let's say, $4,000, probably the average for most people spending on, you know, optics and a rifle for long-range shooting. What would you recommend? Or even hunting as well. So something they want to shoot long-range for hunting to get better. What what could they spend their money on for, say, 4000 bucks? Yeah, mate, absolutely. Um, so that's certainly a, a realistic price point. Um, my first thing would be down, you know, I'm looking at the rifle platform and I probably want to spend about half that amount on the scope if possible. But basically, just knowing the prices off my head, you could pick up something like your Bagara. Um, if you picked up a Bagara and a 6.5, 308, that's perfectly capable to that 1,000 metre sort of distance. Um, the reason why the Bagara, not just because I run it, but because it's fully adjustable and you can get it to fit yourself. It all comes down to being comfortable behind that firearm. Um, with long range shooting, you know, in my opinion, you, you, you're really going to improve yourself if you have that cheek piece and that correct length of pull. Now, when it comes down to, you know, rings and rails, um, any standard Picatinny rail will work for that. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Night Force rails. They're not overly priced and they're very well made and lightweight. Um, a Night Force set of rings is something that I've always run, though I'm now running a few of the Burrises and some Worn rings. Um, they're all different, varying price points. You could quite easily drop, you know, $250 into a set of rings if you wanted to. Um, but basically, between the rings and rails, you're probably looking at it about, you could work off um, another $340 gone there. So I'm no mathematician, but basically what's left over to, to throw into an optic. Um, even if we were to work off that $2,000 mark for an optic um, and under, the Night Force SHV, I'm a massive fan of. Um, if you're not stressed about first focal plane and having all the magnification in the world, they do a 5 by um, five by 20, 56 mil objective Night Force SHV, which I've set at least two or three mates up with. Um, and I've been thoroughly impressed with the performance, mainly for that tracking. Um, if we sit there and we invest a little bit more into our rifle and we want to look at, say, spending that $1,500 and down into the optics, um, at the moment, I struggle to look past the Zerotex. You know, $1,300 for a first focal plane, 4.5 by 27. I think that that is absolutely perfect introductory long-range scope. Um, and to the fact, even though I've run many quality scopes over the time, it's something that I can see myself having on one of my rifles um, for, you know, for the foreseeable future. Mate, if people want to uh, end up stalking you on uh, yeah, the Instagrams or the social medias, where can they find you to check your stuff out? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, my only ever double into social media, as I say, is, uh, was Instagram. So uh, verified long range at Instagram. I've just got a few shooting videos, um, a lot of trying to get into a few instructional videos that I've had a lot of people ask me a few questions and um, like yourself sort of talking over the phone, I find it easier to do the videos than to try and, you know, send it in a message. So yeah, the, the verified long range is literally the, uh, the main place that you'll find me. All right. Jack Muir joins me here on the Australian Hunting Podcast. Talk about markmanship, shooting technique and everything in between, mate. So thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll catch up again soon. No, no worries at all, mate. Um, You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.